Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature osteoporosis in the ocean with Dr. Ross Hill, tricorders and apple lemons. Joining me in the studio is Lachlan Watmore. First up, here's the news. From the New York Times, Apple appears to have laid a lemon, the mighty Apple computer, has finally put out some sort of gadget which doesn't seem to be very good at all. When Apple first announced the 27-inch iMac last month, tech enthusiasts the world over were rubbing their hands together at the prospect of owning one of the largest, the largest all-in-one computer screens ever built, great big 27-inch iMac. But many of those same buyers are now flocking to the Apple user forum to report a multitude of hardware problems and to voice their disappointment with the new gadget. More than 600 posts have been devoted to problems with the 27-inch machine on the Apple forum, with the most commonly reported fault manifesting as a flicker or blackout that happens intermittently when the screen is switched on. Uh, someone wrote in, got my new iMac shipped from Shanghai the very day they launched. Was really excited but now really disappointed by this recurring problem. Sometimes the screen completely blacks out for two to three seconds on interval of five to six seconds and the machine com- becomes completely useless an Aussie user said that uh, my problem with the display seems to have this glitch it happens mostly when I switch on after the display has been asleep for a while Apple do not know what the problem is as I'm onto them almost every day so lemons in the apples right and there's been controversy in the last week as Rom Holben in Brussels has come out apparently from a 23 year coma but the media are divided. The media initially reported that he'd come out of the coma, that he'd actually not been in a coma at all, depending on who you read, but he'd been in what's known as a locked-in syndrome, where he was completely awake, but appeared to be in a coma because his body was paralysed, and he couldn't speak and he couldn't move and he couldn't let people know that he was awake. The story is that Professor Stephen Loris, a neurologist who's done a long-term study on people that have been diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state or a coma, has found that the literature seems to show that 43% go on at some point to spontaneously wake up, which means they were misdiagnosed in the first place. So with this particular individual, he's done a week-long battery of tests and found that their brain activity showed that he was conscious, there were EEGs, There were functional magnetic resonance imaging scans. There were all sorts of things which all converged on the idea that this guy is conscious and awake. Now, the controversy is that the way that the videos on all the TV shows show this guy talking to the world, it's through something called facilitated communication. He can tap his foot on an on-off switch to Mm -hmm. say yes or no. Mm -hmm. But that's all he can do. Well, this is the issue, Mm. is that... What they're showing in the videos is not the on-off switch that Stephen Hawking uses, Hmm. but instead they're showing what they call facilitated communication, which has another person in the loop. 
So what this is, is that he's sitting there unmoving. A human assistant holds his hand above an array of letters and numbers. And then because he's trained, his hand helps the patient's hand move towards spelling out what it is he wants to say. Now, the trouble with this is that skeptic James Randi, for example, has debunked this a long time ago, that it's way, way, way too easy for the facilitator, the person holding the patient's hand... To move it of their own accord. To either move it of their own accord deliberately or even unconsciously in the same sort of mechanism that works with a Ouija board, where your idiomotor impulses, which are the little unconscious signals that your brain sends to your arm to move it, so moving different muscles around at the same time, or a pendulum and a whole lot of other sort of divining devices, Mm. and that this is too much like those divining devices where, Mm. with the best of intentions, the unconscious knowledge of the facilitator is going to override any willpower from the patient who can barely hold their hands, in fact, can't hold their hands still. So Randy said this was nonsense. Fellow skeptic Michael Shermer, who's the editor of the Skeptic magazine, in America also said this is nonsense and they've written loudly on their blog pages and got their army of sceptical followers to to yell that this is rubbish. They're saying this is a cruel hoax because, after all, if you've got any family who's in a coma, you naturally hope that someday they'll wake up. And And you'd also hope that they're not paralysed and and conscious at the same time, you know, aware of what's going on and uh, people walking around as though they're just veggies. So I looked a bit further into it. Stephen Loris the professor who did the original studies, has actually done what Randy has suggested, which is he's taken the patient into a room and he's been shown some something that nobody else knows about and then asked with a facilitator to spell out what the objects were that he was shown. And he was able to do it. So it seems like Randy's bluff has been called, but of course, as a magician he would be concerned about just how double-blind it was and whether there's any way of signalling from anyone else who was in the room. So until we know exactly the conditions under which this poor guy was shown the secret objects, we don't know whether or not he genuinely communicated them or whether it's still a bit of an unintentional trick. Another story is that NASA has developed a pocket device that can detect dangerous chemicals. Is that like um, Bones McCoy's instant um, medical detection device where he goes and says, oh, you've got pancreatic cancer? That's exactly right. Probably with exactly those sound effects. Excellent. So what they've done is they've got a proof of concept device, which means it's not ready for the market, that converts an iPhone, because after all, we want those flickering screens and those batteries that run out really quickly, into a chemical sensor capable of detecting ammonia, chlorine gas and methane. The chemical sniffing device is a small silicon chip that plugs into the phone. Upon detection, the chip uses the phone to alert other people. It was developed as part of Homeland Security's Sell All program with a C. Hopefully, I think we're just lucky it wasn't a sell out program. Mm -hmm. They hoped that one day small, inexpensive and portable chips like this one could turn thousands or even millions of mobile phones into a means of quickly detecting hazardous chemicals in public environments. So you can imagine if every mobile phone had these sort of chips as standard, in fact, if they included some of the forensic stuff for, say, explosives and other things, then you wouldn't even need to deliberately switch this on. It could be a background program. And if lots of phones in an area detected gas 
or something else? That's just what I was thinking. You've got all these little weather stations, well, or bits of weather stations, walking around in people's pockets. Exactly. They could be detecting all sorts of things. So if there's a gas leak, Hmm. if there's explosive, if there's some emergency, Hmm. then they could Or even just natural fluctuations. You know, you've got a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of mobile phones that are recording temperatures and pressures. You know, you can get enormous amounts of data. Well, NASA's emphasis is, of course, Homeland Security because that's where their funding's coming from. Mm. So Homeland Security plans to do it, use it for anti-terrorism. So, but as you say, air quality, ultraviolet exposure, and dairy, nuts or gluten in your meal. So at the moment, the device is able to detect a limited range of gases using a 64 nanosensor array, 16 on each side of the chip. It takes a small sampling jet from the environment and directs it onto the array, the multiple-channel silicon chip knows how to use a mobile phone to connect via Wi-Fi or phone to other phones or a central hub to alert them in case of detection. Okay, so if everyone had the chip in their phone with a bit of crowdsourcing, which is the very popular way of getting lots and lots of people to do your work for free for you, you could, in fact, detect chemical dangers to the country almost instantaneously. They talk about the 1995 sarin gas attack in the Japanese rail system. And the security organisations were criticised for the long delays it took to identify the chemical used. So Homeland Security hopes that this sell-all program will eventually be able to provide an early detection system that will help undermine such an attack in the US. Mm. So there's already been a silicon-based bacteria biosensor. They think they could adapt it for lung cancer. But with crowdsourcing, if the privacy issues are dealt with, we could drastically improve our healthcare system... Every time you talk on your phone, of course, it could be sampling your breath and seeing what the infections are and whether you've got cancer. Or if your friend's phone nearby could pick it up and say, well, your iPhone tells you cancer, maybe you should get a second. No, I think of Jim Lovell at that stage. You remember in Apollo 13 when he tore his biosensors out saying that he was sick of the entire Western world knowing about the state of his kidneys? (laughs) Who can blame the guy? Um, I don't know. If your phone can do it, it seems like a smart thing to do. Another trick to play with your mobile phone... An engineer at the University of California, Los Angeles, has adapted mobile phones to do the work of microscopes in screening for diseases. And what he's done is not put on a super giant lens on his mobile phone's camera. Instead, he's ripped the lens out and he's using holograms. The process creates holograms that can show, for example, a stained white blood cell. He's used about $10 worth of off-the-shelf hardware. Eidegen Ozcan... Assistant Professor of Electrical Engineering and member of the California Nanosystems Institute at the University of California, Los Angeles, says that they convert mobile phones into devices that diagnose diseases. They can be used for screening in places far from hospitals, technicians or diagnostic laboratories. In one prototype, a slide holding a finger prick of blood can be inserted over the phone's camera sensor. The sensor detects the slide's contents and sends information wirelessly to a hospital or regional health centre. The phones can detect the asymmetric shape of diseased blood cells or other abnormal cells or note an increase in white blood cells, a sign of infection. It's an inexpensive way to eliminate a microscope and sample biological images with a basic cell phone camera instead. The devices are so compact because they've eliminated the central element in the microscope, the lenses. There's no need for lenses because the magnification can be done electronically. You don't need optics at all. The way this works is inexpensive Light-emitting diodes, LEDs, added to the basic mobile phone, shine their light on the sample slide placed over the phone's camera chip. 
some of the light waves hit the cells suspended in the sample and scatter off the cells and interfere with other light waves. So you end up with an interference pattern just like you do with a hologram. The detector in the camera records that hologram or interference pattern as a series of pixels. Holograms are very rich in information. We can process the information mathematically and you can reconstruct the images just like you'd see with a microscope. The system may lead to a rapid way to process blood and other samples. It's much faster than microscope and you don't have to scan mechanically as you must with a microscope with a small field of view. You capture holograms of all the cells on the slide digitally at the same time and you can see pathogens amongst a vast population of healthy cells. It's like looking quickly for a needle in a haystack. The mobile phone systems may be especially helpful in screening for malaria. Right now you need a microscope and you need trained people. This device would allow you to work without either in a remote area. Well, finally, um, and, and leading into our main feature for today, uh, there's been what you might call a call to arms amongst Australian scientists with respect to the health of the Australian coastal systems. From Deborah Smith of the Sydney Morning Herald, more than 70 Australian marine scientists have called for immediate action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions after the release of the first report card on the impact of climate change on the marine environment. Oceans around the entire continent have warmed and have, they have become more acidic and the East Australian current has strengthened, becoming, which is bringing hotter and saltier water 350 kilometres further south than 60 years ago. This has caused coral bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef and has, is a likely cause of a 10% reduction in growth rates of corals on the reef. Other effects include a spread of destructive sea urchins in Tasmania, uh, the death of sea turtles off the Queensland coast, and perhaps most alarmingly, the spread of mangrove into freshwater wetlands in northern Australia. From what I know of mangrove, mangrove is a very salt-specific species, and once it starts moving inland, that means that the salt is moving in with it which is a pretty alarming thing. This is all due to a report called Marine Climate Change in Australia, the 2009 Report Card, which is updated every two years, and it identifies where impacts have occurred, and it will have the predicted effects of climate change by 2030 and 2100, and the scientific confidence levels in those predictions. A University of Wollongong researcher, Helen McGregor, said it was a call to arms for scientists, policymakers, and the public to do everything possible to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Erosions of acid giving our tropical reefs osteoporosis? Dr. Ross Hill is a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow and lecturer in the UTS Functional Plant Biology and Climate Change Cluster. He explained to me his research on the effects of climate change on calcium-using sea life, such as coral reefs. So we're looking at uh, the effects of climate change on coral reefs. So in the past, our research has concentrated on corals specifically and understanding how they're likely to be impacted by global warming. What we're beginning to understand is this evil twin of global warming, which is called ocean acidification. What we're seeing is all this CO2 in the atmosphere from human activity, burning of fossil fuels, that sort of thing. We're seeing about a third of all the CO2 that goes into the atmosphere dissolving into the oceans. Now, the chemical reaction that that has uh, leads to the oceans becoming more acidic. So before the Industrial Revolution... 
the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million. Today we're up to almost 400 parts per million, and that's in the space of just over 200 years. So all this CO2, about a third of it dissolves into the oceans, and the chemical reactions that go on lead to more acidic oceans as well as a change in the carbonic chemistry of the oceans. Now, this is important for organisms like corals and anything that calcifies. So there's other animals as well which produce skeletons in oceans to form the structure of their organism, of themselves. So what sort of acid is formed by the carbon dioxide dissolving into the water in the ocean? We see an increase in carbonic acid. Now, that then dissociates into hydrogen ions and the chemical reaction that goes on reduces the carbonate concentration. It's this carbonate iron which is essential for the formation of calcium carbonate, so the skeleton of corals and algae, that sort of thing. So if we're seeing less of this carbonate iron available, there's going to be a reduction in the ability for them to calcify. What we're expecting to see is a reduction in their growth rates in the near future, and we're already starting to see evidence of this occurring. And in the not-too-distant future, we may also expect to see a, uh, the dissolution of these skeletons. So pH may drop to a, a level which no longer promotes the precipitation of calcium carbonate, but rather the dissolution of calcium carbonate. So it's sort of an osteoporosis for coral and algae and other calcifying organisms. Yes, that's a similar analogy. Yep. So how fast is this happening? I just spoke about the change in parts per million of CO2. If we think about the abundance of hydrogen ions in the seawater, which is the measure of acidity, before the Industrial Revolution, we had a pH of 8.2 in the oceans. Today, it's down to 8.1 and decreasing quite fast. Now, that 0.1 change doesn't sound like much, but it's equivalent to a 30% increase in the number of hydrogen ions because it's on a log scale. So how do you measure this? We can measure pH quite simply in the ocean It's with simple probes that we use. Uh, if we want to actually look at changes in the carbonate chemistry, there's a number of different instruments we can use, including uh, infrared gas analyzers to measure the abundance of each iron in the seawater, as well as our total alkalinity. So you can look at the carbon chemistry that's changing, and mm-hmm. you can look at the pH. And I understand you've actually got tanks of coral in a lab? We do. We have a number of coral tanks. Uh, these are used for a wide variety of experiments, not just um, looking at temperature and ocean acidification. Um, but the corals that we are using for these experiments, uh, we have many different species and also a number of other non-coral organisms which also contribute to the formation of coral reefs. So if you look at a coral reef, it's an enormous three-dimensional structure of calcifying organisms of corals and algae and other things which built on top of each other over millions of years. Now what we're beginning to see is at the top of this three-dimensional structure is the current present-day coral community and algal community and these Uh, organisms is what we can collect. So there's corals, there's algae, there's foraminiferans, which are single-celled protists, which also form calcium carbonate skeletons. And single-celled protists, are they like bacteria or are they a different type of organism? They're a completely different set of organisms. So basically they're separate to bacteria and other single-celled organisms? Completely. I mean, they actually, they can come up to one centimetre in diameter. So they're large single-celled organisms They're quite primitive and they're completely different to animals, plants, bacteria, fungi. 
Are they the largest single-celled organisms? Do you no, think? no? We can, you can get much larger than, than that. We also work on Halometa, which is a macro alga. Um, so it's a large green calcareous alga which grows on reefs and the entire plant can be a single cell as well roots or the rhizomes as well as the leaf-like structures wow and how big does that grow they can get up to about 15 centimeters above the sediment 15 centimeter cells wow that's that's awesome so what are you doing with these the coral tanks now we're looking into simulating future climate change scenarios So we're looking at elevating temperature in combination with lowering ocean pH. So these are the two largest factors of climate change, temperature as well as reduced pH. And by simulating changes in both, we're able to predict potential changes and impacts to a range of organisms in the coming decades and centuries. So this is obviously way more accurate than a computer model because you're modelling real coral communities with real changes to their environment. That's right. The data that we actually collect is what can be added to these models to make them more accurate. All this fits in with the computer models is what you're saying. Exactly. One of the major driving roles of the climate change cluster at UTS is to collect a lot of this biological data and use it to in predictive models to give us a better understanding of what the likely changes are, to, are going to be in the near future. And who's using your data at the end, is there government policy? Uh, are there, is there industry? Who's looking at this to try and improve things? There are management implications for impacts to coral reefs. Obviously, there's enormous environmental importance. They have a large social importance. Many people around the world, up to half a billion people, rely on coral reefs for their survival and an economic importance of reefs through tourism, fisheries. So there is an imp- a huge importance in understanding the future impacts. So by looking at individual keystone species, those that actually are responsible for forming the reef and maintaining habitat and diversity, by understanding the changes that are likely to occur to those will give us a better understanding of future large changes to an entire reef. When we're looking at the corals, corals are symbiotic organisms. So they are animals, yes. they're, like, they're nidarians, they're very similar to jellyfish and anemones. And within their tissue, they contain single-celled algae. These algae are responsible for contributing up to 95% of the animal's needs in the uh, form of photosynthetic output. So a lot of the food that anim- that coral animal needs comes from its algal symbiont. However, there are two factors which previously haven't have been quite overlooked. The first being the role of bacteria which live on a coral. Now these bacteria can provide a range of important contributions to the health of a coral. And we're beginning to look at understanding the different microbial communities that can live on a coral surface. How do they contribute to the susceptibility of a coral to future change? So we've looked at simulating a range of future climate change scenarios, altering the bacterial and microbial community that live on a coral that are incredibly important to their survival and fitness, and seeing how vulnerable or sensitive they then become to future changes. The second part of coral nutrition, which has been somewhat overlooked, is looking at heterotrophic feeding. Now what that means is it's as opposed to autotrophic feeding. Autotrophic meaning 
energy coming from the sun, so photosynthesis, so from the single-celled symbionts. Heterotrophic meaning coming from outside sources, so it's feeding on particles in the water. So corals which are effective in feeding in the water and have uh, a large abundance of food available to them, what we've found is they become more tolerant to bleaching. So the more access they have to heterotrophic food sources, the less susceptible they'll be to future climate change in the form of global warming. And just briefly, could you run us through what is coral bleaching? So coral bleaching is the expulsion of the single-celled algae from the host. Uh, What we also see is a reduction in the photosynthetic pigments from within each algae. So these two processes lead to a reduction in the, the photosynthetic pigments and cells within the coral host. The reason we call it bleaching is because as the cells are lost, the coral becomes more and more white as the pigmentation of these algae are expelled from the animal. So the whole coral looks white in colour. So hopefully we'll understand what's happening with the coral reefs and understand what's happening with the climate and be able to take, in the future when we understand it properly, appropriate action. That's the plan. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr Ross Hill working to collect enough data to accurately predict the impact on coral reefs and other calcifying organisms of climate change. To become a researcher in the UTS Function Plant Biology and Climate Change Cluster, you'd need to enrol in an undergraduate environmental biology degree, marine biology or forensics, and do an honours year of your own research, then a master's or PhD. For more information, go to science.uts.edu.au. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Lachlan Watmore and myself, Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.